All right, friends, if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open them with me to Genesis chapter 16 this morning. Genesis chapter 16, and we are going to begin our study this morning by reading the entirety of the chapter together. It says this, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, and Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Laharoi, it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word to to our hearts and to our souls and for his glory this morning. On June 23rd, 2018... 12 boys between the ages of 11 and 17, along with their soccer coach, decided to explore a cave in Thailand's Chiang Rai province. They just wanted to make a memory together for one of their birthdays, but they ended up trapped deep inside the cave underneath a mountain, and they would not escape for two whole weeks. These 12 boys and their soccer coach just wanted to explore the cave together, but they were unexpectedly pushed farther and farther into the darkness by flash flooding that raised the waters to dangerous levels. 
the, the boys and their coach eventually found themselves marooned on a very small rocky shelf about two and a half miles deep into the cave. There was no way out. The, the darkness was, was thick. The, the water was, was deep. When their parents and their head coach wondered where they might be, they went immediately to the cave to look. And sure enough, they found the boys' bikes and bags eerily waiting for them at the entrance to the cave. And so started one of the longest and most difficult rescue missions ever attempted. But by the time the rescue mission was over, there would be over 10,000 people involved in it, more than 100 divers, dozens of rescue workers, representatives from 100 governmental agencies, 900 police officers, 2,000 soldiers, more than 700 diving cylinders, the pumping out of more than 1 billion liters of water, global attention from around the globe, and sadly, even the death of one of Thailand's Navy SEAL divers. It was a rescue mission of monumental proportion. The, the, the problem with the rescue, the difficulty with the rescue was the height of the water and the fact that there was almost zero visibility in the cave. The, the darkness of the cave and the, the murkiness of the water made it so that even the brightest light did not help visibility much at all. There was just no easy way to find these boys. Finally, after 10 long days of searching, a diver finally found the small piece of land where the 12 boys and their coach were marooned. The video that, that still exists of the diver shining his bright light into the darkness as he finds these boys for the first time, it's an extraordinary video. The diver can't believe that he's found them all at one time and that they're all still alive. It's a miracle. And when you watch the video, you can both see and hear the relief from the boys as well. They had been found. They had been found, a light had just shone into the darkness. Despite 10 long days in darkness and isolation, there was suddenly a light coming towards them and the hope of rescue. Eventually, all 13 of them would be saved. Church, can you imagine? Can you imagine being stuck in that darkness for over 10 days? Can you imagine the fear and the loneliness and the feelings of abandonment and isolation? Well, none of us can quite imagine what it would be like to experience that sort of physical darkness. But sadly, many of us know very well what it is to experience that sort of spiritual and emotional darkness. Few of us have ever experienced the darkness of being stuck two and a half miles under a mountain. But all of us know what it is to be stuck under the mountain of our own sin and under the mountain of other people's sin against us as well. Church, Genesis chapter 16 is a very sad chapter in our Bibles. Once again, we see Abram and Sarai coming down off of the, the mountaintop experience of experiencing all of God's many and great promises to them. Coming down off of the mountain only to rely once again on their own wisdom and ingenuity. And, and the result of their own wisdom is catastrophic. They, they try to blaze their own trail, and in so doing, they walk into gross immorality with each other. They, they sin against each other and against their servant, Hagar. 
And, and then when they're not happy with the results of their plan, they make matters worse by, by driving Hagar away. There's a lot of sin in this chapter, a lot of darkness. We, we see the darkness of unbelief on both Abram and Sarai's part, and we see how their sin affects Hagar as well. It, it seems like a pretty hopeless situation. It's messy. It's ugly. But in the darkness of all of this sin, there is a rescue mission that happens. In the midst of all of this darkness, we see that our God is a God who sees. The darkness of our sin cannot blind him to our need, and it cannot stop him from pursuing us despite our sin and despite the sin of those around us. And so, friend, as far gone as you feel this morning, as buried as you feel that you are under your own sin or the effects of someone else's sin, God is a God who sees, and he is eager to launch a rescue mission into your life. Folks, here's the main idea of our message this morning. It's very simple, but so important for our encouragement today. It is simply this. God sees you despite the darkness of sin in your life. God sees you despite the darkness of sin in your life. And we have three points to look at this morning. Number one, the blindness of our own sin. Number two, the darkness of others' sin. And number three, the sight of God. Point number one, the blindness of our own sin. Once again, we find ourselves confronted with the fragility of Abram and Sarai's faith. We're becoming used to their fragility towards God. Last week, we saw God inaugurate an official covenant with Abram, a covenant in which he, as God, accepted full responsibility for both sides of the covenant. It's a beautiful picture of how much God can be trusted in our lives. And yet now, in chapter 16, we are confronted with Abram and Sarai's faithlessness yet again. Let's consider what's going on here. Verse 1 begins by speaking about Sarai. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And so what, what is going on here? is that as time has gone by, verse 3 says that they have lived in Canaan for, for 10 years by now. That's a long time to remain childless. As time has gone by, Sarai begins to lose faith that they will ever have their own child as God has promised. And so she devises a different plan. Now, this plan may seem horrific to you. The idea of giving another woman to your husband in order to have a child by her, that may sound abhorrent to you. It is abhorrent, but it was very common in that day. There are several ancient extra-biblical Near Eastern texts that explicitly state that if a wife does not provide a child for her husband, that he has the right to take a concubine for himself in order to have a child by her. And so culturally speaking, in that day, this would have been a somewhat understandable option for Sarai. These surrogate births were, were not uncommon, and so we can see why it's a category for her to consider. 
But this text makes it very clear that this decision on Sarai and Abram's part is directly contrary to the will of God. Listen, God never affirms polygamy or the taking of multiple spouses. You know, sometimes when people read through the the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, they wonder why so many patriarchs, so so many heroes of the faith have multiple wives. People like Abram and Jacob and King David and King Solomon. Does God approve of this practice? Well, no, he does not. It's very clear throughout Scripture that God never affirms polygamy. It's very clear that the taking of multiple wives is always contrary to God's initial plan and design and that it almost always leads to bad consequences. And and God's disapproval of this practice can be clearly seen right here in our text. This is the first instance of polygamy in the scriptures among God's people. And and notice how clearly the text demonstrates that it is a sinful act on Abram and Sarai's part. First of all, notice the references to who this girl Hagar is. Verse 1 doesn't just say that Sarai had a servant. No, it explicitly says that she had an Egyptian servant. And then it mentions that she is Egyptian again in verse 3. Clearly, in writing that, Moses is highlighting her her Egyptian descent. Why? Not to indict her race or ethnicity, but rather to highlight that this choice on Sarai's part is not a part of God's promised plan and purpose. Right? In In the story of Abram so far, Egypt has been seen as the opposite of faith in God. Right Back in chapter 12, when there was a famine in Canaan, rather than trusting in God to provide for him, it says that Abram went down to Egypt. And that poor decision led to all kinds of ungodly and unwise decisions. Egypt is a picture of godless solutions to our problems. Second of all, notice notice the language of verse 3. It says, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife, and Abram went into Hagar. Doesn't that language sound familiar to you? Wasn't there another marriage relationship in Genesis in which the wife took something and gave it to her husband and he partook of it? Doesn't it sound like Genesis chapter 3, when Eve took of the fruit and gave it to her husband Adam and he ate of it? Moses is clearly writing this in a way to mirror Genesis chapter 3. Why? To to show in unmistakable terms that what Sarai and Abram do here is a sinful act against God. It's marked by unbelief. They are taking action directly disobedient to the will of God. Church, when we take our eyes off of God and his word, when, when we forget his promises, when we doubt his sovereign plan and purposes and his gracious will for our lives, what happens? We, we blind ourselves to the way that is best and we sentence ourselves to difficult and to sad consequences for our sinful choices. Both Abram and Sarai are guilty in this text. Sarai's idea is marked by unbelief and pride. Abram, the heroic man of faith, who just rescued Lot from kings at war, and who should have used that same faith and courage in God to lead his own family, he takes his eyes off of God and his promises, and he gives in to his wife's idea to sleep with another woman. 
Church, do you see how dangerous it is to take our eyes off of God and his word? How, how blinding it can be. How, how vulnerable we become to the lies of our own sinful hearts and to the lies of Satan. This is the blindness of our sin. Our, our sins are so prone to look suspiciously on God's ways, to cast doubt on his word, and to presume that our ways are better. Did you notice what Sarai did, did here? Look at verse 2. It says, Sarai says, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. That, that verse seems like an accusation against God. Sarai is not happy with her situation given by God. But then, even more than that, she seems to be focusing on her lack. Church, there's a difference between taking your burdens and your cares and the delayed hopes and dreams that you have. There's a difference between taking them and acknowledging them before God in humble prayer and dependence. There's a difference between that and just focusing on them alone without any acknowledgement of who God is and how he might be at work. And that seems to be what Sarai is doing here. She's focusing on the delayed hopes and dreams so much that she was blinding herself to the promises of God. This is the blindness of our sin. And friends, this is what so many of us do almost every day, isn't it? And it's so dangerous to us. Church, let this text be a warning this morning. As I was preparing this message, I really felt like there are some who are, who are currently doing exactly what Sarai was doing here. You're only looking at what you don't have in life. You're even obsessing about it. You're not humbly talking to God about it and making him know your temptations, but you're actually making accusations against him. And it's blinding you to God's grace and mercy in your life. I feel like there are people here today who are really close to just giving up on God because they have not been given their hopes and desires. People who, like Sarai, are thinking about cutting corners in order to get their own hopes and desires. So maybe it's cutting ethical corners at work or at school. Maybe it's giving up on Christianity and the church in order to live the sexual lifestyle that you want. Maybe it's giving up on community so that you can live out that secret sin without any accountability. Maybe it's losing faith that God will ever fix your marriage and you are now actively considering separation or divorce or an extramarital affair. I don't know what it is, but I believe that, that for some of us, this text is supposed to be a challenge and a warning to us. Do not go farther down that road. Turn back. Friend, turn back and open your eyes to who God is and what his word says. Don't blaze your own trail like Sarai and Abram. It will only lead to greater sorrow in your life and in the lives of those around you. And that brings us to our second point this morning. Point number two, the darkness of others' sin. When Sarai and Abram take their eyes off of God's promises, the result is not only their own sin against God, but also sin against each other and against Hagar as well. Sin begets more sin. Sin does great harm to those all around us. Look at, look at how this decision snowballs into greater and greater harm. Verse 3 says that Sarai gives Hagar to Abram and that Abram went into Hagar and that she conceived. Hagar gets pregnant right away. 
And then it says, verse 4, when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Now, what does that mean? For a long time, this verse confused me because I wondered why Hagar would be upset about being pregnant. Was, was this an unwanted pregnancy, and did she feel like she was taken advantage of by both Sarai and Abram? But that, that's not it at all. The word contempt here speaks of pride, and it speaks of disdain towards someone else. And so in a culture where, where women prided themselves on their ability to have children, Hagar immediately feels like she is better than Sarai. She feels superior to her mistress. Hagar is now snubbing her nose at Sarai and rubbing in the fact that she was able to do for Abram what Sarai was unable to do. And so even though the plan worked as Sarai had planned, a, a child had been given to Abram, it was not as satisfying to Sarah as she had hoped. And church, there's a lesson for us in that, isn't there? Our sin never is as satisfying as we hope that it will be. This, this decision left Sarah disappointed and, and hurt. It left her feeling belittled and misplaced, even in her own family. And this is enough to stir up Sarah's wrath. Sarah is enraged. How dare Hagar be proud in this moment? This was Sarah's idea in the first place. It was, it was her humility that led her to give this idea to Abram to sleep with her servant. She had given Hagar the opportunity to have children. And so how dare Hagar now look down on her as if she's better than she is? You know, Proverbs chapter 30 verse 21 says, Under three things the earth trembles. Under four, it cannot bear up. Things that, that, that make problems and stir up strife. And one of the things it says is a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. And that's exactly what we have here in Genesis chapter 16. Hagar, in her sinful pride, tries to displace and disrespect her mistress. But Sarai will have none of it. She'll have none of it. She goes to Abram and she says, may the wrong done to me be on you. This is your fault, Abram. Kind of sounds like Genesis chapter 3 again, doesn't it? How dare you let this happen to me and may you feel the consequences of this along with me. But once again, Abram, rather than leading in a godly way, rather than taking time to care for Sarai and to, to walk her through the implications of their sin and to redirect their eyes back to God. No, that's not what he does. Instead, Abram abdicates and says, Sarai, behold, your, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And it says that Sarai dealt harshly with her and that because of it, she fled from her. Do, do you see the darkness that comes from following our own wisdom instead of God's wisdom. Sin wreaks havoc on our relationships with God and with those around us. But by Abram and Sarai taking matters into their own hands, they disobey God, they harm each other, and they deal harshly. They abuse Hagar. Their sin drives her out into the wilderness. And at this point in the text, the, the focus of the text shifts. It, it shifts off of Sarai and Abram and is put on Hagar. She, she's driven out into the wilderness. This is the darkness of others' sin. But church, notice how contrary this is to the way that it should have been, right? 
But we don't, we don't know where Hagar came from. We don't know how she became a part of their household. She was likely given to Abram and Sarai when Pharaoh sent them out of Egypt in chapter 12. But we don't know exactly where she came from. But here's what we do know. Being a part of Abram's household should have been a blessing to her. It should have been a good thing. Being with Abram, the, the one called by God, the one that God had promised to bless, being a part of God's chosen people should have been a blessing but it wasn't. It was a curse. It ended with Hagar alone and vulnerable in the wilderness. In church, sadly, how true is that for us as well? How many of us have been driven out into the wilderness by the sin of those around us? Specifically by the sin of those who, who should have been a blessing in our lives. How many of us have had relationships with Christians which should be a rich experience but that have left us hurt and broken as a result? How many of us have been hurt by leaders within the church, those who should be an extension of God's grace in our lives but who use their position and their authority to do harm rather than to do good? How many of us have been hurt just by the more generic sins of those in our community, the, the sins of pride and, and selfishness and gossip and, and slander and have been driven by those things into isolation? Sadly, some of us have been hurt in more, far more serious ways as well. Some of us have grown up in homes that should have been places of, of peace and love and joy, but were places of emotional or physical or even sexual abuse. Some of us are living through marriages that, that should be a source of blessing but leave us feeling isolated and alone in the wilderness. People sin against us in such significant ways and when other people sin against us in these ways, life can become very dark. That the sins of others can leave us, like Hagar here, feeling isolated and alone and abandoned and vulnerable and exposed. And so, if our own sin wasn't enough to, to push us into the darkness, now you add on the sins of others, and it can be overwhelming, can't it? Our, our own sinful hearts and the sinful actions of those around us can make us feel like we are buried two and a half miles under a mountain of sin and shame, and that there's no way out. Just like I imagine that Hagar must have felt as she fled into the wilderness. Church, this is the darkness of other people's sin. We live in a sin-sick world world. Our own sin and the sin of others is enough to make us feel like we are lost and forgotten forever, that we are unseen by God and by others. But this text reminds us that we are not. We are not. And that brings us to our third point this morning. Point number three, the sight of God. And so maybe we can Imagine what it was like to be one of those 12 boys stuck in the cave. Maybe our own battle with sin and, and the baggage from other people's sin is, is very similar to that experience. Maybe your entire life right now feels like you are stuck in that darkness and in that hopelessness. Maybe you are tempted just to make a bed in it and stay in it and you don't ever anticipate being rescued from it. But friends, I have great news for you this morning. Genesis has great news for you this morning because God is a God who sees you. He's a God who sees despite the darkness of sin in your life, despite the darkness of sin from others in your life. He sees you this morning. 
Look at verse 7. It says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? It says he found her, friends. He found her, and it's clear that he didn't need to search for long. The way that he questions her in verse 8 shows that he knew exactly who she was and where she was coming from. This is the sight of God. He sees and he knows. This is amazing. This is beautiful to our hearts and souls this morning. Think about this. She, She is an Egyptian servant girl. If ever there was someone to overlook it would be Hagar. She's not a part of Abram's natural family. She's only a servant, and she's from Egypt. She's from a nation that is at enmity with God's people. God, God could have just moved on with his story apart from Hagar, but he finds her and he speaks to her. What, what a picture of God's heart for those who are outcast. For those who are broken and hurt by the sins of those around them. For those who feel alone this morning. Friend, where are you today? Where are you? Do you feel like you qualify as someone that God should just overlook? Have you said to yourself, even this week, who am I? Who am I that God would look at me? Who am I that God would speak to me? Who who am I with my sinful past and my many mistakes that God would look at me and give me attention? Or have you said of yourself, who am I? because of the sins of other people, that God would still value me. I'm broken. I'm damaged goods. I couldn't possibly be useful in God's sight. Who am I that God would look in my direction? But listen, God sees. He sees you and he desires to speak to you. Now notice with me. Notice how God speaks to Hagar. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Now, that may be concerning to some of us. Why is God sending Hagar back into the place that she had been hurt? Is this God not caring about Hagar's well-being? Well, no. God is sending Hagar back as a peacemaker. Hagar is, is not without blame in this situation. Her pride has gotten the better of her, and she has created this rift between her and Sarai. And so when God says to her, return to your mistress and submit to her, God's not sending her back to her own harm. He's sending her back to be a helpful part of the solution. But listen, there's, there's an even bigger reason why God is sending Hagar back. Look at verse 7 again with me. It says that Hagar was found... By the spring on the way to Shur. We know that Shur was on the way back to Egypt. It was on the way back to Egypt. So it seems that that Hagar was trying to return to where she had come from. Her, Her own sin and the sins of Sarai and Abram against her had left her broken and alone. And so she was trying to take herself and the child in her womb back to where she'd come from. Back to her home in Egypt. But we've already noticed this morning that Egypt is a place that does not signify faith in God. Egypt represents the human, man-made, godless solutions to our problems. And so in Hagar's hurt, she's, she's wanting to find a solution that brings comfort and peace, but she's looking in the wrong place. Friends, can't we all do that as well? 
When, when we're hurt, we can run away from everything that we associate with that hurt, even if some of those things are good and important things. If someone hurts us in the church, we can just run away from the church altogether and say, I'm done, I'm never going to be part of a local church again. More significantly, if we think that God has allowed something to happen to us, well, then we can just run away from God altogether. But God finds Hagar and he says to her, the solution to your pain is not to run away from me, it is to be found in me. When he tells Hagar to return, he's not telling her to just get abused by other people's sin indefinitely. He's saying that she can't find hope or healing for her life in Egypt or anywhere else other than in God himself and in his many and great promises. And so he says, return. Not, not, don't return to Abram and Sarai first, but return to the place where my word and my promises are present. Don't pursue man-made solutions to your problems. Come to me, God says to Hagar. Come to me with your problems. Come to me with your burdens. Come to me with your hurt. I am the God who sees your brokenness, and I am able to offer you full and complete healing for it. This is God inviting Hagar to experience his grace and his mercy, to, to enter into the good of his promises to trust him by faith and to experience his help. This is a picture of the gospel for Hagar and for us here today as well. I love, I love how the initiative here is entirely on God. He finds Hagar. Hagar does not even find him. She doesn't even know to look for God in this moment. She's heading back to Egypt, but that, but that doesn't stop God from finding her. He speaks first. He launches a rescue mission for her. You know, those, those 12 boys and their coach could not save themselves. They were entirely dependent on the rescue workers to find them and to save them. Even after they had been found, I read this earlier this week, even after being found, each boy needed to be sedated. He needed to be put to sleep so that the divers could swim them back to the surface. What a picture of our salvation in God. We don't find God. God finds us. We're asleep. We're worse than asleep. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We have no hope and no ability to save ourselves. But yet that does not stop God from launching and completing a divine rescue mission on our behalf. He comes for us, church. He comes for you. He enters into the darkness. He finds us alone in that corner, weeping to ourselves. And he rescues us. And he does so by giving himself to us. Jesus, the Son of God, went out into the wilderness to find his people. He suffered and died so that all who were undeserving might become a part of his promises. We had no right. We had no idea, but God chose to look in our direction. He should have written us out of the story, but he didn't. He found us. He came to us. And he died for us. And now, church, he invites us to respond. Verses 13 and 14 show Hagar's faith. She believed God at his word. 
God says a few troubling things about her son, but that doesn't stop the fact that God is putting Hagar in a place of honor and blessing, and she celebrates his goodness towards her. She celebrates that he is a God who sees her, and he, she says that she is celebrating that he is a God who enabled her to see him. She believes, and she follows. And God blessed her and her son as he said that he would. Friend, are you stuck in the cave of your own sin or in the darkness of someone else's sin against you? Is that all that you can see? Are you unable to see anything else? Is it dark and hopeless? God wants to bring you out of the cave this morning. He wants to restore you to life. He wants to give you faith and hope in him again, either for the first time or in a renewed way today, if you have forgotten how he can. Come to him. Come to him this morning. Confess your sins against him. Believe his word to you and follow him back to his many and great promises. Our God is a God who saves and we as God's people should want nothing more than to celebrate how he sees us, like, like Hagar did here. We should follow him, we should give our lives back to him, and we should worship for him for the great things that he has done.